More questions than answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Hi, everybody. Julie here. You know, one of the more subtle but insidious aspects of the COVID narrative got a really big boost on Monday with an article that was published in our arguably top medical journal, the Journal of the Canadian Medical Association. Um, and this is an article that um, basically concludes or seems to conclude that the unvaccinated are dangerous or maybe more dangerous than we thought. The title of the article is Impact of Population Mixing Between Vaccinated and Unvaccinated Subpopulations on Infectious Disease Dynamics Implications for SARS-CoV-2 Transmission. Uh, ever brief, as scientific articles always are, <laughs> titles. Um, the study claims to have found, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems like it's finding that when the vaccinated and the unvaccinated mix, um, the unvaccinated people contribute to the infections of those who are vaccinated. And I think you're going to need to finesse that for me a bit. Um, you know, when something, and, and there's then there's some very morally inflammatory language in this article, which we'll maybe talk about in a bit. But when something like this comes on the radar, I always debate a little bit about whether or not it's good to engage at all for fear of giving you know, breathing more life into it than, than it already has. But I do think that's that's part of what we do as intellectuals and, and you know, your area of specialization is appropriate to be engaging with this work. And we don't want to let uh, work that has very troublesome moral and social implications just fly free without the appropriate scrutiny uh, and engagement. And so I'm very happy and honored to be joined today by Dr. Byron Bridal, you've uh, Guelph immunologist, vaccinologist, virologist. Byron, thank you so much for helping today. I certainly can't walk through this kind of thing on my own. So can you finesse that for a little, a little bit for us? What is the conclusion of this paper? Yeah, thanks for having me, Julie. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, in, in a nutshell, and we can talk uh, more about the science, but in a nutshell, the conclusion of this paper uh, is in fact not just that the unvaccinated are contributing to infections with SARS coronavirus 2, which will remind people that's the virus, which is the causative agent of COVID 19, which is the disease that some people who are infected with the virus get. So the paper's, the paper's conclusion is that not only are the quotes unvaccinated, contributing to infections among the uh, vaccinated, but that in fact that is occurring disproportionately so. Such that the argument from this paper is that uh, the that uh, that the unvaccinated are uh, contributing to more infection to more of the infections among the vaccinated than they otherwise uh, should be with everything else being equal. Um, so this this concept of disproportionately contributing to, to illness among the uh, vaccinated has enormous implications, as you can imagine. Um, and, and there's lots of science I can talk about, but I mean, just at face value, it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting because I, I have di dissected very finely um, the uh, enormous number of scientific errors that are in this publication. But just at face value, if one just 
uh, takes a big picture view for a moment, it really is completely illogical when you start thinking about this. Um, it, it actually it actually leads to to a very obvious uh, conclusion that is pretty negative in the context of the what we're calling these current COVID nineteen vaccines. And I always just for your viewers, I always put vaccines when I'm referring to these inoculations in quotation marks. So I might not do that throughout the rest of the talk, but if I'm talking about a COVID vaccine and I use that term. Just keep in mind that the definition of a vaccine was changed to accommodate these inoculations. And I, as an immunologist who have taught immunology for a long, long time, cannot rightfully apply the term vaccines to these. Uh, so that's just so just people understand why I always put that in quotations or refer to them as COVID-19 inoculations, because there's a characteristic about uh, these kind of shots that that's required in order for them to traditionally been called vaccines. And we were using that traditional vaccine or, or definition when these entered clinical trial testing and when they were rolled out to the public. So it's it's a the traditional vaccine or de definition is the legitimate one to be using and considering in this circumstance. And this paper, that, that conclusion that I just highlighted for you uh, is proof like if that if that were true, uh, and and that conclusion is absolutely not true, and I'm sure that, that we can certainly get to that. I, I can explain to your viewers exactly why that conclusion is not at all true, why it's completely false, to the point where I I am happy to declare this paper to be outright disinformation, not even just misinformation, but deliberate relaying of incorrect information. And it, it, it comes down to this. Um, if the unvaccinated are, or, or if the, the, the vaccinated are being placed at disproportionate risk uh, uh, from the unvaccinated, um, then the vaccines clearly are not working. They're clearly not working, are they? Um, <laughs> I it, that's it's really where you were going to go with that, right? Because I, I think yes. that this um, concept of sterilizing versus non sterilizing vaccine, which I didn't know about prior to. I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, I think it's still not understood very well. So I think it's useful no. to pause on that for a minute in the context of this conclusion, which I think you make the good point. I mean, yeah, if yeah. vaccinated or if we were talking about smallpox, a paper like this couldn't exist, right? Exactly, exactly. Because nobody would buy this idea that, yeah, you, you know, the, the, uh, so, so just to highlight. So, so I'll specify what I mean by this definition change, because a lot of members of the public don't realize that this happened. This what it is, is the United States Centers for Disease Control changed the definition of a vaccine because these current ones would never be allowed to be designated as vaccines, for example, under patent law. Um, if applying for a patent, and in fact, people tried to apply for patents to call medical products vaccines that perform similar to these ones, and they were denied because there, there is a certain standard that has to be met to be called a vaccine. And the definition was changed uh, in the middle of 2021. So like I said, well after these were rolled out to the public. So the, the in terms of the original clinical trials, which are still going on, right, they, they, these vaccines are still in the, in the uh, initial phase three clinical experimentation phase, right, um, in, in people. We have to keep that in mind too. And the declared endpoint, which means that the definition for success of these is that they need to uh, um, prevent COVID-19, which is the actual disease. So not, not, in, not infection, but the actual disease. And, so, and that PCR positivity, right, there's lots of problems with that, but actual disease, the COVID-19. And the, so the traditional definition, but this is the key. The traditional definition of a vaccine is that it must confer immunity. Now, the interesting thing is the, the United States CDC did not change the definition of immunity. I mean, they can't. If they did that, 
all the historical uh, immunological literature uh, would be thrown into chaos. Um, so the purpose of a vaccine is, and the original definition is, that is to confer immunity. And immunity has a specific meaning. Immunity means to be protected. All right, and what and 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 specifically what it means then is a vaccine is something that uh, prevents somebody from getting the disease, and it prevents them from transmitting the causative agent of that disease to other individuals. Mm -hmm. And this inherently makes sense. So if we think these current inoculations look nothing like any of the historically mandated vaccines. So if you think of our the childhood vaccination schedule, which includes a lot of mandated vaccines. Once you're done your childhood vaccination schedule, you don't require uh, to be uh, boosted again for the rest of your life. And, and you're protected from those diseases for the rest of your life. And that, that's the key. That is, that is what, a, what a real vaccine does. Um, a, 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 an even more intuitive way to help people understand what, what a real vaccine is, is thinking of vaccines for travel. I always like to use that example, because if you go to travel to an exotic location where there's some kind of pathogen that's endemic there, but not present here in Canada, it's not unusual for a physician to recommend that you that you get vaccinated to protect yourself against that disease to to achieve immunity against the disease. And what happens is uh, the physician will administer that vaccine and then they will wish you well on your vacation. <laughs> and then you as an individual will pay a lot of money to travel to the endemic location to actually risk engaging with that potentially dangerous pathogen. Still, you're perfectly protected. Exactly. That's exactly it. it, it yeah, a, a vaccine is to confer, uh, induce sterilizing or near sterilizing immunity, which provides that protection that you're talking about, right? You can then travel to that location and enjoy your vacation without the constant fear that you might get sick and die from that pathogen that you've been vaccinated against. Further, your physician, um, you know, encourages you to go on that vacation once you're vaccinated because they have no concern that you're going to bring that pathogen back to Canada and spread it to others. Um, never before have we mandated something um, like these vaccines. And so it was interesting. They changed the definition, uh, Julie, to suggest now that a vaccine merely has to induce an immune response that, is, that can uh, have some benefit against diseases. In other words, you know, this concept that it could potentially blunt the severity of a disease. Now, to put this into a proper perspective, but it's interesting because, again, they didn't change the definition of immunity. And then they go on to say, well, guess what? You know, just for, for your information, an interchangeable term with vaccination is immunization. Well, immunization, right? Immu if you look at the beginning of that, uh, the reason why it's called immunization is because it is an injection to confer immunity. Right. Um, and so the way they've changed it now, it actually is no longer interchangeable. Um, and, but so, so that's the highlight. So the, the definition as of uh, about a year ago now, uh, less than that, is that it's, it's a product that simply has to induce an immune response. And that immune response can have benefit in the context of, of a disease or various diseases. So mm -hmm. guess what? Yogurt now is a vaccine. And I'm sorry, as an immunologist, I am not going to accept that. I am not going to teach my, I'm not going to change the years and years of my immunology teaching and start telling students, teaching students that uh, yogurt 
yogurt or vaccines. But that is the case. I can show you there is plenty of published peer-reviewed scientific literature that shows that yogurt, especially yogurts containing probiotic bacteria, mm -hmm. induce uh, responses in the immune system. It, it is measurable uh, immune responses induced, beneficial, especially in the, in the immune system. And this can be of benefit. These immune responses can be of benefit against a variety of diseases. Therefore, yogurt meets the definition now of a vaccine. And so before this you, is how um, people have to understand. Yeah, before you go further, let me just, so I don't lose the track of the argument here, back to your travel example, it seems like we are uh, treating the COVID vaccines in the way that we treated the traditional vaccines, because we do say you're vaccinated, come on the plane, do whatever you want in Africa, go wherever you want, uh, come back into the country, no problem, because we have no degree of worry that you could transmit this virus. And now we get a paper like this one by Fisman AL, um, and it seems to me that you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? So either the vaccines are sterilizing, in which case the conclusion of this paper is not possible, or they're non-sterilizing and we're undermining that perfect impervious view of what the, the COVID vaccines can do. So which claim is he wanting to hold on to here? Or is well, that well, too much? Well, okay, so you highlight something very interesting there, Julie. I actually found it to be a very difficult paper to uh, dissect as an immunologist because there's conflation of terms in there. Okay. So, for example, with what I we know just what that means. <laughs> yes, yes. So, with what, we, with what we just talked about, remember, I said the CDC did not change the definition of immunity. It means to be protected from disease and transmission of the causative agent. And he uses the term immunity. So, as I said, and when you look, there are so many incorrect assumptions. So, so people understand, we're talking about you know this paper by Dave, Dr. David Fisman, Ashley Tweet, and and a graduate student. Um, and, and I don't want to bring the graduate student into this, right? To me, this is. Um, this is the responsibility of faculty members, uh, but uh, but in, in their paper, what they did is they, they have published a mathematical model and in this mathematical model, the way a mathematical model works, it gets crunched by a computer and everybody's heard this term. Anytime you're working with a computer, you know, it, it, people will have heard the term garbage in, garbage out. It's because all the computer does is it just very objectively crunches numbers depending on the formulas that you tell it to use. And so that's what an epidemiological model is. So in this case, they, they, they engineered a mathematical model and anytime there's a model, a model in itself is, is completely useless until you plug data into it. So you input data into the model and then it spits out, right? The out, it, it outputs um, numbers that you can then interpret. And the purpose of these models is supposed to, they're supposed to be predictive of real life, like what's occurring in the real world. And uh, and so the idea is that they can be used to uh, to predict what might happen in certain scenarios. And so I, I want to point out, first of all, I, I, I respect epidemiologists very much. I know many epidemiologists and they're fabulous. And epidemiological models are uh, potentially an incredibly powerful tool for informing uh, public health decision-making. But in the hands of people who are misusing them or, or using them incorrectly, they can be very dangerous because that principle applies of garbage in, garbage out. So they're only as good as the information that you're plugging in. And so what you have to do is, depending on the parameters that you're looking at, the, the proper way to do this is to have multiple, like, like look at the scientific literature and find where, what, where does the weight of the scientific literature sit? 
on any given uh, value parameter that you're going to put into the to a model, and then and, then and you cite that. Yeah, you cite that, and then you put it in. What do you mean by parameter? You know, I was just talking with Denny uh, Rancourt about this, and I think parameter is a very scientific specific uh, concept. So what, can you just say a bit more about that in really simple terms, like parameters and values and what is it? Uh, absolutely. So, 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 repre okay. yeah, so representing a key variable. So for example, in this model, uh, they plugged in numbers representing the degree of natural immunity among the unvaccinated population. Another parameter that they plugged in was a number to indicate the effectiveness of these vaccines, um, et cetera. And where numbers come from? So that's it. So the numbers should come from uh, peer-reviewed scientific literature and the weight of it. Uh, ideally, you don't even just provide one citation. The only reason why you would provide one citation is if that's the only paper that's provided information on that particular variable that you're plugging into the model. Otherwise, you want to demonstrate that the number that you're using is backed up by the weight of the scientific literature. So what I mean by that is, you know, you might have had 10 people publish uh, on, on a particular subject, for example, the effectiveness of, of a vaccine. Now, two of them might be in disagreement with the other eight. Uh, but the way science works then is it, it, it's legitimate then to 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 highlight that and show, you know, but eight out of the 10 papers say this is how it is, right? Say this is the effectiveness of the vaccine. And then, then you're okay for um, potentially writing off these other two because the weight of the science is in favor of the, the number that you are going to plug into the model, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how it should be done. And where you have to be very, very careful uh, when it comes to this modeling is when it comes to assumptions. Because if you are assuming that uh, uh, that a, a number rep is representative of a certain variable you're plugging in, uh, what that really means is an assumption means you're pulling it out of thin air. And you, you try and use the assumption guided based on uh, the science, um, but, but that is very open to criticism because you, you have to be very careful. It's an assumption, it means you do not have uh, objective scientific data to justify your number. Um, and so ideally, you don't want to be working with too many assumptions in a model. And if you are using assumptions, you have to be very careful to make sure that they are very realistic assumptions. And there were some critical assumptions made in this paper that I can tell you is an immunological assumptions that are outright wrong, completely wrong and completely unjustified. Um, so, so let me give you an example. Uh, well, okay, here's an interesting one. So there, there, I'll just highlight two, there, there, there's, there's several, but I think if we highlight two, it gives us the ability to, to really show how the messaging from this paper is completely incorrect. Mm -hmm. So one of them that I'd like to highlight is the, the, the assumption that was made on the duration of immunity that's conferred by these vaccines. So first of all, as you said, they actually implied, they use the term immunity. So they, 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 they claim that these vaccines induce immunity, which implies, like you said, um, sterilizing or near sterilizing immunity, protection from the disease and transmission. We all know, uh, this, this is the thing, the mistake with this paper is you don't need to be a scientist. You do not actually have to have expertise in any of the sciences represented in this paper, which includes virology, immunology, uh, epidemiology, public health, medicine, because there's some things that are so obvious. So people know 
that, and it's openly acknowledged, it's openly acknowledged publicly by our politicians and by public health officials that these vaccines are not preventing transmission. So to mm. make this assumption that they actually confer immunity is, is ridiculous. And to use that term in this case, because it has a very specific meaning. And and those meanings have to be taken seriously when they're published in peer review. So the, uh, one of the assumptions of the authors is that the vaccinated person has more immunity than the unvaccinated person. That's one of the initial. Uh, no, well, no, they don't actually they don't actually uh, declare that uh, because because actually that would be completely incorrect. Um, and in fact, they seem to imply that it's equal, that it's equal, but that those who have been vaccinated are a greater percentage of those are therefore immune and they've made this assumption that very few of the unvaccinated are immune they don't they aren't recognizing hmm. um the degree of natural immunity that's been acquired in that population and and but so so specifically this leads to um these two key things one is they, they made this assumption that the immunity never wanes the immunity never wanes post-vaccination now so again you don't need to be a scientist because the general public know that that's right up Right, right over, wait, right away. That is an okay. incorrect <laughs> assumption uh, because people know if they keep if, getting if they, the boosters. So. Exactly. If the immunity never waned, why are we on to the fourth doses and now talking about rolling out the fifth doses, starting with the frail elderly again? Right. People, that is an open admission, and and no, no scientist or physician will stand by now and say, you know what. Peak immunity conferred by these vaccines, it never wanes, it never disappears. Worse, worse. So people know that. So they can see right away, there are there are inherent flaws in this and you don't have to be an expert. And mm -hmm. then, but what I will tell you is more importantly, not only does the immunity obviously wane, this is the key thing, it wanes differentially. So what I mean by that is the vaccine, again, I always remember this in quotes, the vaccine induced immunity wanes very quickly. With these boosters, uh, it's estimated as quickly as two months, uh, to which, which point there might not, not only be no protection, but maybe even negative effectiveness, maybe actually enhancing the potential for infection. And we can get that to that later. Uh, remind me about that, Julie, because that gets to our own real life public health data. It's a very important point that we need to discuss. But so very like like ridiculous i can tell you as a vaccinologist it is a ridiculously short-lived immune responses right that have that might have any protective effect whatsoever whereas in contrast naturally acquired immunity is much longer lasting so far as as studies are done uh the naturally acquired immunity is lasting as long as we're able to evaluate them thus far based mm -hmm. on when the uh the this SARS coronavirus 2 first uh you know entered the population way back in December of 2019 so those who were infected way back in December 2019 still have evidence of protective immunity now so th the point is we know that naturally acquired immunity is much longer lasting than the vaccine induced immunity so not only did they make uh an absolutely inappropriate assumption to say immunity doesn't wane it actually wanes differentially and if if you are an epidemiological modeler and you now introduce that well-established fact into the model guess what it completely changes the output again garbage in garbage out when you correct that one parameter that's that's uh, in the model, that one assumption that is incorporated into the model, when you correct that, the output completely changes. And then I'll highlight one more. The other one, which to me was very disconcerting, is they made this uh, additional assumption that of those who are unvaccinated, 
about 20% of them, the, the specific number they plugged in the models, 20%. They claim that 20% of the unvaccinated have naturally acquired immunities. This is preposterous. And people can go and they can look at the model. They can download the model. If they look up this paper, it's in an, in an Excel spreadsheet. And on the first page of the Excel spreadsheet, at the very top left-hand corner, the first thing you see are all these parameters that were plugged into the model. And if you go and you look at where the 0.2% or the 20% is, it's the very last parameter. And then they have a column that says that provides a justification for why they selected that number. And guess what the justification is for the 20%? It is, and I quote, assumption. It's meaning they pulled it you out of thin air. It's in your paper. We're going to link it because I think it's easy okay. for people to go. I know you've hot, you, you've screenshotted that or something. Yeah, absolutely. I guess what, Julie, so there's a great paper published by uh, a great Canadian scientist and many other scientists, uh, a, a whole group, a whole team from the University of British Columbia of great scientists. They published it in a great high quality journal, uh, the Journal of Clinical Investigation Insight. Uh, this is a very good quality uh, scientific journal. They published a paper that I have cited that, that claims that about 90% of healthy adults likely have naturally acquired immunity. And so right there again, remember what we said about the, the, the weight of the evidence? So they're using an assumption. I, as an immunologist, can point to a great paper uh, that, that suggests that the real number should be in the ballpark of 90%. I would argue it's probably much higher because since that paper was published, we have had these record shattering waves of the Delta variant come through our population. Then we had an even greater uh, record-shattering wave of the Omicron variant come through. And now, you know, we're seeing an uptick. We've seen a recent uptick again due to the second sub-variant of Omicron. And people have seen this, vaxxed or unvaxxed. It's running, it's run wild through our population. We have all these institutions where everybody's vaccinated, masked and physically distanced, and this Omicron variant has just ripped through them. Anyway. Um, so it would be, <laughs> yeah, anyway, so it would be, shocking to me if it isn't the vast majority of people now uh, who are unvaccinated who have naturally acquired immunity and yet they just pulled out of the thin air this number 20 percent so this is the other thing so if you change that one number in the model from 20 percent to and i went to a more conservative 85 percent but you I mean, pick what you want 65 percent 70 75 80 85 90. you plug that when, in instead. when you plug that into the model these much more realistic and defensible models where you can actually provide uh, a good quality scientific citation the output completely changes again. And so this is important for people to understand. So we can identify multiple incorrect assumptions, incredibly erroneous assumptions that were plugged into the model. Now, imagine for a moment, if we corrected any one of them, completely changes the output. So imagine what happens when you correct all of them. I'll tell you what happens, uh, Julie. It actually flips the model literally on its head. So it reverses, completely reverses the conclusions such okay. that I can't, and what that means is literally you could go back through the paper. So if you correct the immunological assumptions, and remember these authors are not immunologists, and this is what I've suspected for a long time. We are being dictated to, these health COVID-19 policies are being dictated to Canadians by public health officials who are largely epidemiologists. They are not immunologists. They do not understand the immunology. And now that we finally have a glimpse into the assumptions that they're making about the immunology, and remember, 
Vaccinology is a subdiscipline of immunology. You cannot ignore the immunological parameters that you are plugging into an epidemiological model. So if I let's let's just pause right there. So I want to make sure that we understand what you mean by you know the results flip on their head when you get the yes. accurate sort of eighty-five percent uh, immunity number plugged in instead of the twenty percent. What does yes. that mean? Does that mean that now, as opposed to the mixing of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated posing a risk to the vaccinated, the opposite is true? One hundred percent. You can actually then go back through the paper and reverse the terms. And what I mean by that is everywhere where they have placed the term vaccinated, you can replace that term with unvaccinated. And then everywhere where they have stated unvaccinated, you can replace that term with vaccinated. And you're absolutely right. Then the conclusion of the paper is that the vaccinated are disproportionately uh, representing the source of infections for the unvaccinated and it's the unvaccinated who are actually serving as a buffer to help protect the vaccinated and and so i just want to point out something because this is a great point to, time to bring in the real world data because that's the thing when when you run an epidemiological model the only time people uh, at first glance are, are, are going to start accepting that that the legitimacy of it is the first question you have to ask is how representative is the output of the model with what we're seeing in the real world. So what I've just proposed, um, Julie, is, is you know is shocking to some people because they're saying, how can you come up with the exact reverse conclusion? So in other words, the Fisman paper says uh, that that the that the unvaccinated are, dispropor are disproportionately a danger to the vaccinated, uh, which again, just from common sense, is crazy because then the vaccine obviously is not something you want. But I'm if you do what if you make these corrections, and again. I'm not the one who's made the model. I'm just correcting the immunological inputs and getting the completely reverse conclusion, right? Um, and so based on their own model then, when you correct these things and you get the opposite conclusion, you then have to ask, well, again, so that's like in the scientific literature. So who could possibly be right? These are two completely opposite messages. So I would point people to go and look at uh, the, the public health data that's freely available to everybody. And this, Julie, is available in, in multiple provinces now and, and, and multiple well, let's countries. Let's go to get this because, I, you know, I even I find, have a hard time figuring out where do I find data about, you know, uh, what are the rates of infection, different groups of people? Exactly. So, so for people who are in Ontario, go, go to the uh, Ontario Ministry of Health website and look at their COVID-19 data. And what you'll find there is one of the one of the graphs that they have is they disclose the rate of a diagnosis of COVID-19 cases among based on a stratified by vaccination status among the, the, the population of Ontario. And so there's three lines on that on that graph. And what you see is uh, so the one represents they're calling them the not fully vaccinated now because they've lumped in those with a single dose of the vaccine with the unvaccinated. Um, apparently, they, that those with a single dose now are considered as leprous as, as the unvaccinated now. To the people um, with vaccine regrets, possibly. That, yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. Or, yeah, severe adverse reactions potentially that negated their ability to receive a second dose. Yeah, right. for whatever reason. And and, and, and then there's the, uh, the second line represents what we're calling the fully vaccinated, which means they've had two doses. And the third line uh, shows the, the uh, amount of COVID-19 being diagnosed among those that are boosted, meaning they've now had three or four doses. And again, we'll soon be adding fifth doses to that, which is crazy. But the point is, 
when you look at this paper, based on this conclusion, one of the things they propose, I mean, there's two things, and the, and the one I think that we should talk about, uh, but I'm not going to focus on right at this moment, is this idea of avoiding mixing with the unvaccinated. So that's one of the conclusions. But the other conclusion, the other conclusion is get your booster, get your booster, right? This shows you why you should get a booster, uh, because to protect yourself even further from these, you know, this leprous, unvaccinated community. So people people go to the site i think they will be shocked because when you see that the that the key message one of the key messages from this paper is go and get your booster when you look at the data it normalizes for different vaccination rates so you don't have to worry about the fact that it's a smaller proportion of the population and uh, that was vaccinated they normalize for that and they're, what they're saying is and when you look at the graph the conclusion julie is that the boosted ontarians are being diagnosed uh, well, COVID-19, let's, let's put it this way, is being disproportionately diagnosed at a higher rate among the, the vaccinated, especially the boosted. Uh, and so specifically, this, is, this, this frightens me as an immunologist because public health officials have not been heeding these warnings. Uh, and what we're seeing is you have a more, right now, you have more than a twofold higher chance of being diagnosed with COVID-19 mm -hmm. if you have received a booster dose. So if people, when people look at that, what I encourage people to do, I even put up this graph now when I'm, when I'm giving uh, public presentations. And one of the things that's interesting is if you remove the definition, because people get drawn into this fact, this idea that, well, if you're vaccinated, you know, you have to be protected because I've been told that. No, think objectively and think critically, I, I tell people, right? So if you remove the labels from this graph and you see the lines and you come to understand that the highest line is indicative of that means you are at a disproportionately greater risk of being diagnosed with COVID-19 and you ask people do you want to be in that group I mean the obvious answer 100% of the time is no why would I want to have more than twice the chance of being diagnosed with COVID-19 and, and, and it's interesting like what's yeah, happening it's, here is we're importing the model and the beliefs and the assumptions about a sterilizing vaccine into our current situation. Exactly, That's exactly. very strategic psychologically and very yes. effective, right? I, I, absolutely. And the funny thing is when people see that, you know, what they'll often say to me when I show it that way and I explain what the, what the different lines mean is they'll, they'll say just that, no, I don't want to be in that group where COVID's being uh, diagnosed at a two, two-fold greater rate than right. the other groups. Uh, no, I definitely want to be in that boosted group, you know, and then you reveal the labels what uh or, or you know or, or, or sorry sorry um no i know what, you mean. what, what, what they say what is what they say what they say is no i don't want to be in that unvaccinated group right because they make the assumption that the lowest line must therefore be the boosted um and so they're shocked when they unveil the labels and they see what that that line that i didn't want to be in is the boosted group Mm -hmm. Right. It's shocking. But that's the thing. When you look at it critically, you have the labels removed and you understand the outcome that you're trying to avoid. And then you add that label that says that it's the vaccinated that are in that group you want to avoid. Right. It completely changes people's uh, perspective. This this public health data is it's scary to me as an immunologist because it is suggestive of something akin to vaccine enhanced infection. And I, people can look at other products. So I've looked at Alberta, the Alberta data, which shows the same thing, the Quebec data, even more so, even more so. Um, data coming out of the United Kingdom is particularly frightening. We don't have transparent data in Canada beyond the cases. So what I mean by that is that people still hear, hear these arguments that, well, you know what, the vaccines blunt uh, the severity of the disease, they at least protect you from the worst outcomes. And what they mean by that is hospitalizations, admissions to the ICU, and deaths. But Canadians, 
What you have to understand is that data is not transparently relayed because they are not overlaying on top of that very important data that they have now revealed. So, for example, we now know that more than 50% of all of the hospitalizations that are associated with COVID-19, more than 50% of them, are not even due to COVID-19. And in fact, what our public health officials say is they were uh, admitted for some other uh, medical condition, but happened to have COVID-19 on the side. That is untrue. That is untrue. They haven't even proven that they had COVID-19 on the side. Remember what I said, Julie? COVID-19 is the disease. What, what the, that is, more than 50% are in the hospital for some other medical condition, and they happen to have a positive PCR test result. Mm -hmm. That is not direct proof of COVID-19, the disease. And you, I know, have, have spoken about this, and I'm sure people who are watching today have seen you, uh, you know, have seen you speak about that very thoroughly and eloquently. And I don't, I want to make sure we don't run out of time because I want to talk about sure. the language that, you know, as an ethicist reading that really sticks out to me. So this language of mixing, and I'm going to use two direct quotations here just to make sure that I'm being careful about the article. So the authors claim that the impact of mixing of vaccinated and unvaccinated, right? That's one of the phrases. And one of the other phrases is complete like with like mixing. This language of mixing, I mean, I can understand that there's a, an epidemiological, uh, immunological principle to do with uh, you, you know, people with different uh, virological statuses being in close relation, relation to one another. I can understand that. But the, because the language of mixing of different types is so um, stigmatizing and comes laden with so much historical significance that we have, I think, in Western societies worked very hard to avoid. We've, we've tried very hard, and you should speak to this as an immunologist, but I think we've worked very hard to reduce the stigmatization of people with illness, including infectious illnesses like HIV, rather than trying to compound that sort of stigmatization. And this language of mixture has this sense of mixing clean with dirty, pure and impure, worthy with unworthy. I know this isn't really your area, the, the moral connotations, but what, what do you think about that in a, in a scientific paper? So these in individuals, uh, you know, have drawn a conclusion from this paper, but it's based on a model where they literally plug garbage in and they got the garbage out that they were looking for. It needs to be retracted. And now to directly address the messaging, because seeing that as a scientist, knowing very seeing very clearly the scientific flaws and like i said most people in the general public saw obvious flaws to it so you don't even need a scientist like me to to, to back that up mm. so then we get to the messaging so that's why julie i am so adamant about this that's why i would actually go to court and declare this as disinformation because the output from this has been picked up the the the, the conclusion from this paper has been picked up by legacy media and carried around the world I, i've seen the canadian physicians are relaying this information to their patients and it is wrong because I'll tell you, I, I one of the things I do, um, so actually just out of interest, my computer right now is sitting on three books that, and I have this huge collection. I, I'm a war history uh, buff uh, and, and I love reading about war history. So I, I've got like, so sitting right beside me here, I've got about 50 50 books in this volume on World War II. You know what, so, Byron, I have that book. <laughs> okay, there you go. And, and so you probably know where I'm, where I'm going going with this because I, I, I'm familiar with, um, you know, the atrocities that happened, of course, as, as everybody is with uh, in Nazi Germany and with the Jews and everything. But 
what I actually find uh, particularly interesting, even more interesting than than the, the, the hardcore World War II history, is what happened just prior to that. And I find it frightening because I've done a lot of reading about that and all the political upheaval and the political changes uh, that, that, that happened leading up to World War II and led up to the justification for genocide against uh, Jewish people. Um, and guess what? This whole concept of mixing and not mixing was was an inherent part of that. And so this is a problem. And so as an immunologist, I want to highlight, so you're right, there is an epidemiological use of the term. But what people have to understand, when you're talking about vaccines, this is why, Julie, I opened with making sure that your listeners understand what the definition, the traditional va- definition of vaccine is, and it doesn't include yogurt. Okay, and so as if you exclude things like yogurt from the definition of a vaccine, then a paper like this can never be written, as you said, as you pointed out very rightfully, it could never be written because a vaccine. Again, okay, it's, it's, it's remarkable that, that I find that I have to explain this to, to, to Canadians in general, but many Canadians aren't seeing this. It is like, think of the, the vaccine for travel. For those of you who love va- vaccines, and I'm a vaccine lover, I'm a vaccinologist, but you love all vaccines, including these COVID-19 inoculations, think for a moment about those vaccines for travel that you love. Again, remember, you take that and then you actually mix with the population where the pathogen is endemic. You pay money to mix with that population. Your physician wishes you well and encourages you to mix with that population where the pathogen is endemic. Now you have a paper coming out saying, guess what? These, quotes vaccines are such that we should not be mixing with the unvaccinated. Are you serious? Are you serious? If a vaccine is doing anything remotely like what it's supposed to be doing, you would actually be encouraging mixing and you know why you would actually encourage the mixing, um, uh, Julie, is the whole concept of vaccine or herd immunity. Everybody, many people seem to have forgotten all of these same public know. health officials were pushing herd immunity. The vaccines are a tool to achieve herd immunity. It's, herd immunity is about, surprisingly, immunity. Right, protection against disease and transmission of the causative agent. And there's two ways you can acquire immunity naturally, once you recover from infection, or vaccines. Vaccines are only, only a useful tool for achieving herd immunity if they actually confer right. sterilizing or near sterilizing immunity. Okay. And yes, and the whole purpose is you, the whole concept of herd immunity is you do not need everybody to be immune. If you have a majority of the population immune, the the disease dies out because the infectious agent can no longer spread efficiently among the population. So in fact, if you actually want to achieve herd immunity and you want to do it with vaccination, guess what, Julie? You actually vaccinate people and encourage the mixing because the more you mix, the more you increase the likelihood that the unvaccinated are going to come into contact with somebody who's vaccinated and protected instead of somebody who's unvaccinated and potentially spreading the disease. So you see, Julie, this... The whole principle, the whole underlying concept of this paper is completely wrong and leading to very concerning uh, conclusions of, of, of discriminating against people, segregating against people, and promoting hatred of those who have... Uh, and again, you know what the, one of the scary things is for me, Julie? As soon as I saw early on in this paper, they actually they refer to the anti-vax group. Right and, and how they're they're propped up by by uh, misinformation, um, organized or something. Exactly. This is ridiculous. Like, 
they don't even acknowledge that this concept of, of the vaccine hesitant, uh, which I would define, uh, and many people define the vaccine hesitant as those who simply aren't, edu- aren't educated enough to know that they should be taking the vaccine. No, vaccine hesitancy uh, leading to an outright uh, choice to not take the vaccine, I'm finding in, in the majority of cases in this group that remains unvaccinated is because they are highly intelligent, critically thinking individuals that have looked at the science, especially as it has evolved, and they have seen the obvious uh, um, and they have made a very well-informed decision not to get the vaccine. But this paper starts off with that kind of label, right? If you've chosen not to get a vaccine, therefore you must be anti-vax. It means you must be, what, and remember, there's a, there's, a, there's a meaning implied by that term. Um, it, mean, it implies that you are uneducated and or completely unwilling to consider science at all in decision-making, and you just carte blanche, I uh, think that every single vaccine that's ever been manufactured and ever will be manufactured uh, is dangerous and garbage and doesn't work and causes more harm than good. Mm-hmm. This is an incorrect assumption to start with. And then you finish off after uh, executing a completely uh, flawed model, mathematical model, where you have just plugged in whatever that you want to get the output that you want. And then you come up after setting it up with that initial messaging to say, to ju- justify hatred against that population segregation. I mean, it's wrong on so many levels. This is not the Canada that I know. And this is why this kind of garbage science has to be stopped in its tracks. Because you have to understand, uh, Julie, this paper now is published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, right? So again, I will tell you, when it comes to science, the top level of evidence to support any statement that you want to make is the peer-reviewed scientific literature. So with this garbage having somehow miraculously got through the peer review process and by the editor, right? This claim can be made now. And we're seeing that already. I've seen tweets from physicians and government officials using this to justify the decisions they've already made, such as the vaccine mandates. And that is why we have to stand up because we cannot allow this kind of garbage now. When I see this kind of garbage being published and promoted in Canada, that tells me that science in Canada is dead. Evidence-based medicine is gone in Canada. And we need to remember, don't we, as citizens, not just scientists and physicians as citizens, but the mere repetition of a claim does not count as justification. And we're just seeing it over again. And we're seeing begging the question. We're seeing confirmation bias, but we're not seeing a real hearty engagement with data. And I really appreciate you you doing that for us today. I want to ask, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I want to ask you, um, you know, I mean, I, I... I've published in sort of the ethical ancient philosophy realm and and reading lots of papers. Not every paper that's published is is perfect. Errors are made for sure. But the concern I think that you and I have is that um, this is an error not only might not be as innocent as it seems, but it will have effects that can cause great harm for people. I wanna ask you, who do you think is ultimately to blame here? Is it the authors? Is it the public health school at the University of Toronto? Is it the CMAJ editor? Is it the media for picking up on this in lockstep quickly in perfect unison with one another and spreading it quickly? Is it the government for financially supporting this research? I mean, or is it a combination of all of these things? Uh, yeah, that's an easy answer, Julie. It's a combination of all of them. Uh, multiple, every, everybody has to, take, has to take responsibility. Uh, like, like I said, when it comes to this publication directly and just the specific paper, the authors that, um, like I said, I, I again, I'll say it again. I, I, I 
am happy as an expert, and I have served I serve as an expert witness all the time in court, um, and so I understand that 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 making these kind of statements comes with the, the onus is on me to be able to prove it. Well, I, I I've I've proven it. I'll I'll stand in court and I have more than ample scientific evidence, including like I said when I when I correct the model using uh, the proper assumptions uh, and, and flip it on its head, as I've already pointed out, it then matches the real world data, whereas the output as it currently exists in the publication does not match the real world data. So that alone is the first thing you look at and you say, okay, who's closer to being right here? Well, when I flip the model and then it matches real world data, you know, I'll stand on that. And, and I will stand on all the immunological assumptions that are incorrect, that I've claimed are incorrect. So therefore I will stand on my accusation that this represents disinformation by these authors. And so they are, the first ones to blame for this paper getting out. Uh, there's no way they, they should have uh, published this. And I'll say it also bluntly. This is, I see it as hate literature, mm -hmm. ever so thinly veiled under this auspice of science. So thinly veiled that the public can see right through it. Um, hmm. and, and, and so what I I'm also think is, think is wrong. I... Yeah, yeah, and so what I think is wrong here as well is, uh, you know, the, the editor, the editor should be, have to answer for this paper being published. They're the ones that give the final approval for allowing this to actually get published. I would like to know what their rationale was, why they didn't look at what happens if I, what, if I change this one number, you get the reverse conclusions? Then how can I possibly allow a paper to be published with the current conclusions, especially well, when the number that they plugged in, which gave these conclusions, is unjustified? It has no scientific basis to justify it. You know, not just um, the editor, so, but there are yeah, and reviewers. the reviewers, and then it's the reviewers. The reviewers. I mean, they should have seen the glaring errors. Like I said, it's embarrassing for the reviewers that the the public immediately could pick up on so many of the of the fatal flaws, such as claiming that the vaccine induced immunity never wanes right so it's embarrassing so this suggests to me even that there there's there needs to be an investigation honestly i believe of the reviewers and and who those reviewers are look at the conflicts of interest and get some justification from there for why did they especially now that there's all of these uh holes that have been punched in this in this story uh justification for why they didn't see these uh, did the editor pick people who who don't know uh, anything about epidemiological modeling and and, and the immunological inputs well, quite um, possibly in a medical journal quite possibly yes yes and so this is important so yeah you're hitting like it's an important thing there julie uh thank you because it's important for your listeners to understand remember what i when i said that peer-reviewed science is is kind of the pinnacle for justifying statements made by scientists one of the things i want to point out is a lot of people to understand the peer review process it's only two maybe three scientists who are looking at a paper who are very busy maybe too busy to even look at it properly but they submit their reports and it's supposed to be a quality control system and if something is not worthy of being published they should be declaring that to the editor and the editor will not publish it or they'll say here's all the errors and then the onus is on the authors to correct those errors and if they can sufficiently correct them and address them the reviewers will come back and say you know what they, they've 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 strengthened this they've they've alleviated all my concerns go ahead and publish it now um but scientists as objective as we're supposed to be and as knowledgeable as we are in our areas of, of expertise, we are fallible. We're human beings as well. Um, and, and, and the review process is fallible because remember these reviews. So it was done by either two or probably three people. 
anonymously. We don't know who they are. It was done behind closed doors. We don't know what any communications were. And so just because it's a peer-reviewed publication, people, I, I want to always highlight this. It, that does not make it the gospel truth. It simply does not. Mm -hmm. um, proof of that is evidence that over the years, throughout the entire history of having published scientific literature, there are regular retractions of these scientific articles, right? After the fact, they are deemed to have been so incorrect, so misleading, that they are retracted. If there's an apology essentially issued saying, you know what, this was wrong, This ignore it. And if you were in the court of law, you'd be asked to strike that from your mind in your decision making. Um, is this that is one gonna of those happen papers. here, do you think? Uh, it's interesting because so many politics at play. I don't know if it will. I don't know if it will. People are desperate to have that those peer-reviewed publications to cite to justify statements that they want to make. So I don't know. If politics were removed from this, Julie, and this we're talking about objective science, it, it should have been retracted. It should have been retracted within the 24 hours that the general public, in which the general public had outpouring of their own observations that highlighted the, the critical flaws in this paper. Uh, yes, this should be, there's no question this should be retracted. Whether it will be, I don't know, because I don't trust the scientific process. I don't trust the scientific review, review process anymore. As a Canadian scientist, I am so upset with what I see happening, and this paper is the pinnacle. Um, I've lost faith in, in my field of expertise in Canadian science. I, I, I've lost, uh, I've lost faith in how it's being practiced. I, I'm, I'm losing faith in the publication process. And I want to point out something, Julie, your listeners have to understand something, because what this highlights, this is the first time, I will say kudos to the authors for disclosing their model. We have tried as scientists to see these models, these secret models that are constantly being run behind closed doors that are informing all of our COVID-19 policies. And you know what? I as an immunologist have constantly been asking and trying to get the information. What assumptions are you making about all the immunological parameters? What assumptions are you making about effectiveness? What assumptions are you making about duration of immunity? What assumptions are you making about the degree of natural immunity among the unvaccinated populations? I have never been uh, privy to that information. And yet these models have been dictating every policy, the masking, the physical distancing, the vaccine mandates, everything, the lockdowns, the shutdowns, the shutdowns of small businesses. And now we see, I can't say with this model, we can't prove that the other models were as fallacious. But when you, remember, David Fistman was a member of the Ontario Science Table and a key member of their modeling group. He was critically involved in all this modeling. So what I'm saying is when you see this model and the complete crap that it represents with the garbage in, garbage out. I will guarantee you, because any modeler will tell you, it doesn't matter how fabulous the model has been constructed. If you put garbage in to a fabulously constructed model, you will get garbage out. And so what this shows is proof of principle that had garbage been entered into all of the previous models, the output that they were get that they got from those models would not be at all predictive of the real world. And I would like to point out that in fact, people can go back themselves and see from those predictions, how many of them are actually realized? What I see from those models, when you go back and see the real world numbers, is that it seems like over and over again, they were contributing to fear mongering. They were always vastly overestimating the problem. And I would argue that this current model that was finally released is suggestive that maybe some of the input parameters could have been more accurate. And I would argue could have been more accurate, for example, on the immunological side, would have been more accurate had multiple objective immunologists been consulted with mm -hmm. to determine 
what kind of numbers should we be inputting for these immunological parameters? And I think, I predict, my hypothesis is, we'll never know until we actually have these models disclosed. But my hypothesis is that we would have seen very different outputs and very different outputs would have, guess what, resulted in very different looking COVID-19 policies. Byram, on that note, I, I just can't thank you enough. I mean, we, <laughs> I, I talk a lot about how we have such a closed system in science, in, in government, in media, in academia generally. And we can only poke little holes in that by having conversations like this. I thank you immensely. I know we have to run. We're going to link the article you wrote commenting on this uh, Fisman AL paper. Um, is there? Do you, do you want to tell people, do you have anything coming up that people might want to know about? I know people love to go and see you speak and see you in person. Any events coming up in the next little uh, I'm actually speaking at a town hall event tomorrow, actually, but it's sold yes, out. We're, <laughs> we're there together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing you there. there. It's, it's going to be fabulous to see you again. Um, the other, uh, yeah, so no, not really. But what I would say is if, if people want to follow me, I'm, I'm now focusing on putting out uh, little tidbits of science uh, and, and, and showing um, showing people the, the misleading science that's underpinning a lot of these COVID-19 policies. I'm doing that through my Substack article. That's uh, my, uh, so if anybody's interested, again, as a public servant I, who's, who's paid for by taxpayers, I offer I offer free subscriptions to it. So feel free to subscribe freely if you want to get regular updates on the science and you know my, my expert um, infusion of, of uh, opinions into what's going on with COVID-19. And uh, it's a viral immunologist at substack.com. Good, okay, thank you Byram so much and for all you do today and for the last, well, not just a couple of years, but for I think a couple of decades probably. So thank you so much and we'll oh, see you thank soon. Thank you. Okay, take care. Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you enjoyed watching this video, please consider making a tax deductible donation to the democracyfund.ca slash donate.